0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome everyone to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and I'm very, very excited for my interview today. It's been almost a year or so that I've been talking about the World Wildlife Fund on this podcast and all the amazing things they do for creatures big and small, scaly and furry. But today I actually get to talk to an expert from the World Wildlife Fund. I'm so excited today to be hosting Nalanga Jaya Singha, She's a senior program officer that specializes in Asian species, and she's based out of Washington, D.C., here in the United States. I'm really happy to have her here. We're going to focus today mostly on the Asian elephant, uh, which is a species of elephant that's often not as highlighted as the African elephant. And she also specializes in other Asian species, such as rhinos, tigers, and snow leopards, And some of her areas of expertise include human-wildlife conflict. So welcome today. I'm so happy to have you. And good afternoon, Nalanga. Hi, Angie. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. And hi, everybody. Now, I always like to ask my guests in the beginning just to tell me a little bit about yourself and what is your background that brings you here today at the World Wildlife Fund.
1: Sure. Um, So as you mentioned before, uh, I focus on Asian species conservation here at WWF based in the US. Um, And that means that I work with WWF teams, based in more than 15 countries in Asia, working on these flagship species issues on the ground, you know, from everything from Asian elephants to tigers to Asian rhinos, um, runs a gamut and runs a gamut of issues, uh, everything from protected area management to law enforcement to human wildlife conflict, um, you name it. You know, we, we work on it on the ground uh, with the teams there who work to protect these species uh, in the different countries that they're found in.
0: And how do you go about from maybe just loving animals like myself as either a child or a teenager or even in college to actually the job that you have now where you are in working for such a well-known and well-organized and respected organization like World Wildlife Fund? I mean, you basically have most people that love animals or listen to this podcast dream job. <laughs> so give us some clip notes. <laughs>
1: Sure. Um, so I, I, I think, I mean, I've always had a deep love for animals and wildlife. I grew up in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, which is in Asia and is uh, an Asian elephant range country. So as you can imagine, you know, I grew up, uh, around elephants, just seeing them growing up uh, since I was a child and remembering being, you know, one of my first memories being, um sort of intrigued by the notion that an elephant might be, you know, passing by my house, you know, there are captive elephants in the city. and uh, They'd be normally transported, walked from one place to another, and they'd wear this uh, bell around their neck. And uh, every time you, you know, if, if, every time they walked down the street, you would hear the bell from a distance. So one of my earliest childhood memories is actually every time I heard that bell, I would run to the window or to the gate at the house and just like watch in awe every single time. It never got old. As an elephant walked by and, you know, I would watch until it went off way into the distance and just remember being just completely enthralled. It was a magical experience every single time. And and to this day, that hasn't gone away. Every time I see an elephant, be it wild or captive in any situation, it just brings back this wonderful memory and reinvigorates this deep sense of love I have for this animal and all other wildlife. You know, just being able to experience wildlife, either, you know, in the wild somewhere or at a zoo, just being able to see an animal and connect to it is such a
0: wonderful experience. Well, especially such a large, iconic elephant, an animal as large as an elephant. I mean, it's so amazing that your childhood, you, you could, like you said, you would look out the window and see that I, growing up for me, I was lucky if I saw some squirrels, <laughs> maybe a deer here and there, maybe a <laughs> white-tailed deer, deer here and there. Uh, and so just to, right. to have that presence, I'm, I can imagine how powerful it was and, and they're just so majestic. I don't, I, if, um, the first time I was able to be close to an elephant, their size blew me out of the water. Cause I, I work with horses all the time, which are big animals, mm-hmm. but they're, they're you know, very small compared to an elephant.
1: Absolutely. And I, and I think it's, I think, and now that I think back on it, I was very fortunate to have had that experience to, and to have had it influence my life and where I decided to take my career, yes. you know, and it's because of that love for elephants and that deep desire to further, not just their um, conservation, but the conservation of all the wildlife um, is what eventually helped me decide my career path, you know, and to be able to sort of you know, you just mentioned it is kind of a, you know, it may seem like a dream job for many people who want to work in conservation, yeah. work with wildlife. It is mm-hmm. a dream job for me as well. You know, Um I, you know, never as a, a growing up or as even a, a younger adult could have ever imagined myself doing the kind of work that I do today, being fulfilled every day, doing what I do and knowing that I'm in my own little way hopefully, making a
0: difference for
1: wildlife everywhere. I
0: think you're most certainly making a difference for wildlife everywhere, and especially Asian elephants. And so with that being said, how did you get involved with the World Wildlife Fund? Um, uh, Were you a conservation major? Or what were the series of different jobs you had earlier in your career that landed you at the World Wildlife Fund?
1: So my path was not a linear one. It was a long Nobody's and winding okay. road, which makes it kind of interesting. Um, it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Yes, and and it is something I always tell folks that there is no one way to do it. There's no one way to get there. Um, and as a uh, you know, for in in my educational, ba- you know, career background, um, I was more a humanities person, you know, I was an English major uh, in undergrad, and then a journalism um, uh, sort of a specialist for my graduate degree. And I did got my you know, master's in journalism. Uh, but I focused on environmental reporting, because that's what I was always, you know, had had a long standing passion for that. And eventually yeah. realized that, personally, I'd much rather work in conservation than write about it. And then over, you know, long and winding road, uh, going through different positions and different co- conservation organizations over many years, uh, realizing where I wanted to be, you know, in a programmatic role with a hands-on, you know, sort of uh, role in conservation, working with field teams and doing a little bit of everything. Um, and eventually being able to uh, sort of be, be, sort of come to this position. Um i think it, you know it it required a lot of hard work a lot of, of new learning you know i had to learn a lot of different things along the way through different jobs um and i consider myself to be more on the science side now in my role as a somewhat of a mm-hmm. biologist in a way even though that's not my educational background um I am in a way able to combine and use a lot of different skills, I would say, that I've brought from many different fields into this job. Um, and, I, and I think that's helped me that long and winding no. road and the many experiences, uh, you know, the blood, sweat and tears, I would say, have yeah. helped me, uh, to be a better conservationist today.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I, I do believe that the multidisciplinary approach of having understanding of many different fields of study to blend together to just help you have a better or for me at least have a better understanding of all the different aspects. For instance, I wish I would have gone to school for learning how to record and talk on interviews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm you know, that I'm kind of just self teaching myself and going from there and, and and learning and reading about it and getting hints along the way. And so like you said, a lot of it's just Getting looking for that outcome that that you want, and I mean, I think you definitely hit the the jackpot as a senior program officer, and you're getting to have a hands-on application and programs that are saving these Asian species, and that's where today I'm so excited to talk about the Asian species, the Asian elephant. So for our listeners, so could you briefly describe some physiological differences between African elephants that I know a lot of listeners and people are very familiar with and then Asian elephants?
1: Yeah, so there are actually a number of differences between, um, African and Asian elephants. If you're looking at African elephants, also there are two species found in Africa, you know, the savanna elephant, of which there are more than 400,000 estimated today, um, and African forest elephants that are found in the, um, the central Congo basin region, um, of the African continent, of which we believe there to be perhaps around to less than 80,000 or so in the wild. Um, and then on the other hand, Asian elephants found on the Asian continent in 13 countries. Um, wow. There are less than 50,000 indi- We believe there are less than 50,000 individuals in the wild today. So compared wow. to other elephant populations, also they're in a lot more trouble um, and dealing with a lot of different threats Um and and it's really important i think that um, people are aware of the differences and of the fact that there's so much diversity even in the elephant families and uh in terms of differences between the species if you're looking at you know savanna elephants for instance in africa they're much larger than asian elephants mm-hmm. uh yes. that's one mm-hmm. obvious difference in size they're much larger they're heavier they're taller um and another distinct difference is that the shapes and the sizes of their ears are different. African elephants have much larger ears, almost shaped like the continent of Africa, if you look at it. They're large and yeah. um and in almost a sort of a large triangular um shape. Um and Asian elephants also have a sort of triangular like shape, but they're smaller. Much smaller, um, mm-hmm. in proportion, if you compare comparison to the years of African elephants, for instance. And another key difference is that, um, African elephants, both males and females grow tusks, which is, has been a significant issue in terms of the poaching crisis that we're right. seeing today yeah. in Africa, because both mm-hmm. males and females that grow tusks are targeted for their, uh, for the tusks, for the ivory trade. Um, in Asia, only males, and today only a certain percentage of males grow tusks. Females do not. Um, and even with tusked males, we believe, you know, over time, the ivory, the poaching crisis for ivory originally began in Asia, where a lot of tusked males were poached out. So there's a higher proportion of tuskless males today that were able to propagate. And, you know, the the numbers are higher today, where there are fewer oh, tusked males. Mm-hmm. Uh But also the, the another interesting thing is, is some tuskless males and some females grow these like teeth called tushes that you might see protruding from the side of their lips. But these are not necessarily, these are not tusks, but they're just larger teeth that they grow. So, but the interesting difference is that African elephants, both males and females, grow tusks, while Asian elephants, only males and only a certain percentage, these, percentage of these males grow tusks. Um, and those are among some of the the many, there are many other differences between the, the two. But if I were to highlight some big ones, those three would be some significant um, differences that you'll see between the two.
0: Yes, and we'll put some photos up on our show notes, because I think if you look at them side by side too, it, it becomes very obvious. Um, I think to an untrained eye, if you were just given a test, it might be a little harder. Uh, yeah. But side by side, I think you can really see the size difference and and um, the ears and then overall the height and the weight. So, And Nalanga, do you have a story you want to share about an, a, an interaction with an Asian elephant that you've had? recently, or even in the past, besides when you were a little kid and the bell, when they would ring the bell. I just love that story because that, that reminded me of my childhood, but it was usually the ice cream truck. Oh, right. (laughs) Seemed cool until you told me the story about it actually being an elephant. That's way cooler. (laughs) I was like that about the ice cream truck too.
1: But you know, of course, if there was an elephant that trumped (laughs) it.
0: Right, right, absolutely. If
1: there was an ice cream truck and an elephant coming down the street at the same time, of course, I'd be drawn more by the elephant. Right, but, right. Know, yeah, ice cream that... also had a lot of appeal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think a, a really cool story that I can uh, reflect on from, from a recent experience would be about a year and a half ago, I was in India in the field, uh, northeast India in the state of Assam. With the WWF team out in the field, this was monsoon time when, uh, the monsoons actually flood many areas and Kaziranga National Park, which is a famous park and a world heritage site, uh, which has significant population of tigers, rhinos and elephants. Um, a third of the park, about a third of the park gets flooded during the monsoons. And during this time, um, elephants and other wildlife come out of the park and cross this movement corridor area and go into the adjacent hills to higher ground to get away from the floodwaters. And another key uh, characteristic in this landscape is that these movement corridors are blocked today by a major highway that goes through it, right adjacent to the park. So during monsoon seasons, um, generally the uh, the forest department staff that oversee the park uh put up uh, barricades on either side of major movement areas so that the wildlife can cross safely uh, so that cars are not speeding through these areas and hitting wildlife as they're crossing, particularly in the night, because that's a really active time for wildlife to cross back sure. and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one afternoon, we were traveling down this highway, um, and it was around 4.30 in the afternoon. I wasn't expecting to see anything coming out of these crossing you know, corridor areas, because uh, normally you'll see it later in the evening. And all of a sudden as we were approaching one of these barricaded areas, uh, suddenly my colleague shouted out, was like, look, look over there. And all of a sudden I look up and this big matriarch elephant steps out onto the road from, from the park side, looks around, flares her ears at the cars almost as if, you know, t- telling them to just stay back. We're about to cross the road. And she stepped boldly onto the road and started crossing it and following her were about eight or nine members of her family that just crossed after her. And it was just one of the most magical moments. They just came out, just crossed nonchalantly across the road and went off into the adjacent hills. And uh, I felt lucky because that's not something you see that often or, and I was able to capture this image on my phone as well, you know, with the wildlife crossing sign in the background Um, and just being able to see these elephants cross at a time when they normally, let's just say, would not be crossing. Um, And what I, you know, in my heart of hearts liked to think was that, you know, they kind of knew that there was an elephant person in the area and they had to come out and say hello. So I like to think that was, Why? But it was such a magical moment just to see them come out and cross the road and to see these wild elephants, you know, just doing their thing in their natural habitat and doing what they've done for probably generations and generations, you know, crossing back and forth.
0: Yeah, way before there were roads and... Absolutely. And Way before roads were there,
1: these are their historic, you know, movement corridors that they need mm-hmm. to be able to get from one place to another because they're really wide-ranging animals. They're large animals that l- require a lot of land, an area of land, uh, to make a living in. To find food, to find other resources, um, and to move about. So it's really important that we are conserving, not, for instance, not just protected areas, because wildlife don't normally generally tend to adhere to man-made boundaries and protected areas. You know, this this is <laughs> no, a human construct. They don't
0: construct. understand the signage. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> absolutely. So they're going to live as they've always lived. And so I think mm-hmm. this is why we also need, when you're looking at conservation approaches, why you need to take a large landscape-based conservation approach to ensure that you're not just protecting protected areas, but everything else that's around these protected areas because animals are going to travel all over the place from one place to another through um human-dominated landscapes often. And oh, so yes. you want to ensure that you're working with different stakeholders um, to to be able to conserve the the space that wildlife need in addition to the wildlife themselves.
0: Yeah. I mean, your story just gives me goosebumps. I picturing that as that would be like a dream come true to see that and all the, all, all the elements, but this leads into the next question though, with the estimated 50,000 or less Asian elephants in the wild, besides obviously major highways, what other pressures are wild Asian elephants facing? So, if you think
1: about the threats that Asian elephants face, um, poaching, which is a predominant threat for African elephants, for instance, for their, uh, the tusks, you know, for the ivory trade, is a threat, but is not the biggest threat for Asian elephants. So, in Asia, um, the area that these animals are found, in, in addition to all of the other Asian species that we work um, work on on conserving, that area is also home to the world's largest population of humans. You know, it is the most populated area of land, if you look in comparison to other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. in that same circle are also the most number of humans that we find today um, in the world. So you can imagine when you put, you know, all of these, the wildlife and the people all side by side, the biggest threat you can see is habitat loss. Mm -hmm. Because wildlife, uh, different species are constantly losing out on the space that they need to thrive. Right. Uh, because there are also uh human populations competing for that same space for instance and so the biggest threat i would say for to asian elephants today is habitat loss and resulting human elephant conflict so when they lose you know their uh homes for instance and also because elephants are wide ranging species as they move about um, they're often going to come into contact and often negative contact with people that live Side that live, um, with them to in mm-hmm. today's world, right? Often you'll find, um, communities and villages and agricultural crops right next to protected areas in many places because, you know, often, uh, very poor communities also, these are the only places that they can get to be able to make a living, to be able to grow their crops. And they also have no other option and no other recourse. So it's, it's. Often a lose lose battle for both species when they come into this negative contact. you know when elephants come into these areas, they will often see a crop um, as a nice meal, and they will come and feed on someone 's um, you know rice field they 'll eat their paddy grains or they 'll eat their bananas or their sugar cane, and, you and can't often. Really blame destroy them. Them. absolutely and sometimes they have uh you know either don't have enough food resources where they're living or it becomes a learned behavior they learn that this is an interesting crop source a food source that is much easier to get than what they would feed on perhaps in the wild so it is something that draws elephants often and also this leads to loss of property loss of life and in retaliation people will you know uh turn against these um, elephants and other wildlife and and kill them in retaliation. So this is a situation that you can't
0: that, really blame those people either. Absolutely
1: I mean. because most of the folks are extremely poor mm-hmm. uh, often with you know, elephants necessarily don't even have to eat everything. They're, you know, come across. They can even walk across a field, and that could be a year's worth of damage for a poor uh, community that's eking out a living in these areas. Wow, so, if you're losing yeah. a year's worth of income, that is a big blow. This is why we have to work yeah. hand in hand with communities to be able to ensure that we are preventing these things from happening, but also ensuring that both humans and elephants are thriving. And coexisting in a way that they're not impacting each other.
0: Right. And so can you tell me a little bit about your work at the World Wildlife Fund to help conserve the Asian elephants and its habitat and perhaps reduce some of this human-animal conflict?
1: Yeah. Uh, There are a lot of different activities that WWF teams undertake on the ground across range countries where Asian elephants are found. Um, Since I mentioned that human-elephant conflict is a significant issue, uh, it is an issue that all of our teams across all of our range countries are facing and having to deal with and address. So... um, we work hand in hand, as I mentioned, with communities, with mm-hmm. the governments of these countries, with the forest departments or the wildlife departments that are in charge of managing the wildlife in protected areas, for instance. Um, also, other partners like other NGOs and uh, other organizations. We work hand in hand to put in measures to both um, prevent the cause, prevent and mitigate, you know, uh, the, the uh, impacts of conflict, but also to address the root causes of the conflict. So when the conflict is happening, you have to help communities to live with the situation or to prevent them by putting in things like fencing, for instance, electric fencing in places that are prone to uh, regular visits from elephants, for instance, that don't block movement corridors, but are in a way put in to protect people's crops and their properties, et cetera, put in other measures like, you know, uh, deterrence, like training sort of local community member teams to serve as response units when elephants come in. They're trained on elephant biology and safe ways to drive elephants away from their areas through, you know, use of light and sound and things like that. Um, but also at the same time, we want to ensure that we are addressing the drivers of the conflict which is at the end of the day is land use changing land use patterns habitat loss etc so we have to work with government agencies for instance to lobby for the protection of certain areas to to keep them uh, protected for elephant use and things like that but also find ways to um, <clears throat> reap re replant areas, perhaps historically that may have been lost to elephants, that was historic elephant habitat, to ensure that they have a place to live in and are not regularly co- or, or uh, replenishing or reinvigorating, you know, pr- protected areas that may have lost natural fodder, for instance, replanting, you know, native foods or putting in water sources or things like that to enable the elephants to sort of have what they need within where they're living. Right. So things like that, um, there are a multitude of things that are done on the ground in addition to things like, um, doing research on elephants to understand where they're going, what habitats are useful for them. And that means putting collars on them to track their movements and do sort of radio tracking through collars. Yeah,
0: like how much land do they need?
1: Exactly. And what areas are really essential? For instance, if, you know, you're protecting a really essential movement corridor or essential areas where they're regularly uh, sort of found in our mm-hmm. critical elephant use areas, then you're ensuring that when you, by understanding that you're ensuring that you're working with governments and land use planners to be able to protect those key areas in order to protect the elephants, but also to reduce issues like human elephant conflict mm-hmm. and other threats that they face. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand what you're working with as well. So that research component is
0: critical. And so in regards to the Asian elephant come conservation, mm-hmm. what are some of the goals of the World Wildlife Fund?
1: I would say where elephant conservation is concerned, the goal of not just the wildlife, World Wildlife Fund, but also other NGOs and anyone interested in, in elephants and elephant conservation, um, I believe it should be to work together. To ensure a secure future for elephants, uh, you know, well into years to come, to ensure that they have what they need, that they're protected um, and also are thriving in their homes and their habitats. And to ensure that development does not happen in a way that is unplanned or unprecedented, uh, but is carefully thought through so that we're allowing for not just elephants, but all other wildlife to be able to um, share the space with us. Because I mean, I personally think it would be such a poor world to live in if we didn't have elephants and other wildlife to share it with. Oh, they make us so much richer, absolutely. and just being able to see them and experience just just be in their presence and it is such a wonderful feeling that I think we would all be so much poorer if this world did not have them in it.
0: Oh, I agree wholeheartedly, and and as you had kind of previously mentioned, I think with them being such a megafauna, such a large animal putting in these applications to help their conservation helps so many other animal and even plant species down the line as well. Absolutely. So it's almost like if you do focus on some of the bigger ones, you're just naturally saving some of the smaller ones as well. Exactly.
1: Which is the the flagship species approach that we speak of, you know, these large charismatic species like elephants, tigers, and rhinos all require large areas of land uh, in which they can thrive. Uh, so if you are conserving, you know, these spaces, you know, at a landscape level with a broader picture in mind, you are also conserving many other species that share that same space with them. So it's a holistic uh, approach to con- a broad based approach to conservation, which uh, goes well beyond sort of a piecemeal look at, you know, what we're trying to save.
0: Right, right. And so I highly doubt there are any, especially after listening to your expertise. But if there was a naysayer out there or someone that didn't agree with money being allocated to save or help conserve Asian elephants or save habitat and land for them. What would you say to help get them excited about Asian elephant conservation or to, quote unquote, change their mind or to get them to pay more attention to Asian elephants?
1: Elephants in any habitat that they're found in is the largest mega herbivore. Particularly in Asia, they're so critical for a lot of different roles that they play in the ecosystems that they're found in. Uh, they are, they can be seen as sort of the gardeners of the ecosystem because they often, in dense forested habitats that they live in, they will often create pathways by simply the move, their movement alone as they're traveling from one place to another, create pathways for other wildlife to use. You know, many of the little tracks you find in forests that were not man-made, probably in areas where elephants are found, probably elephant made, you know, and they enable other species to move about. um, And also they engineer the system in a way that they serve as seed dispersers. For instance, they eat plants and they eat seeds and then when they defecate, that seed will take root somewhere else along the way as they're traveling. And those seeds will be able, the trees and the plant species will be able to propagate more broadly as the seeds are being dispersed. And even like especially some, some plant species have actually naturally evolved to rely on elephants, for instance, for their speed, a seed dispersal. For instance, when elephants eat them, they don't fully digest the seed in their uh, digestive system. So which means that the seed is still active enough to, to propagate once, you know, it is um, ejected from the elephant. So th- this way, it's, it's a really unique um, and very interesting symbiotic relationship, I would say, that the elephant has with the, the, its environment. And also another really interesting thing is when an elephant walks around, it has these big feet, right? This big round feet. And then when they place it on the ground, it makes a significant mark on the ground. It leaves a big footprint. And sometimes in places um, where, for instance, water will gather in those In those footprints and it's like a little well, a mini well in which other microcosms can evolve. Other species will take root and tadpoles can thrive in those and become frogs. And so it's really amazing when you think of all of the different roles that they play in an ecosystem Mm -hmm. and think about if you take that animal out of that ecosystem, the changes that will be brought upon that, you know, area without this mega herbivore making the interesting impacts that it is making where it's living. And also, um, I would like to add that elephants are very much like us. They are very empathetic. They're emotional animals with uh, with significant intelligence. They have a brain size uh, that is very large in comparison to their body size. One of the few animals in the world. And one of the few that can um, identify their own reflection in a mirror. And they have this amazing sense of um, empathy. Each individual is an individual, like each human is. You know, they have their own different um, characteristics Mm -hmm. and their personalities. And just being able to share a world with that kind of animal. That has so much to teach us, even from their behaviors and what they do. You know, you may have seen documentaries on how if they find the bones of another elephant somewhere, it may have been an elephant they met along the way in their lives at some point years ago. They'll recognize and they'll stand there mourning that elephant for, you know, a good half an hour or so or even more. And then, you know, that shows a certain dimension that we can all learn from. And how they work together as a herd, you know, matriarchal herds when there's danger present to protect their babies. That sort of thing. is just like there's so much we still do not know about these animals. And if we lose them, again, going back to what I said before, what a poor world this would be. Yeah. I think, I mean, there are so many more arguments I could put forth for why they're important. But I think these are some of the big ones mm-hmm. that I think hopefully will resonate with anyone who is an naysayer.
0: Yeah. And... Are there any correlations to their economic importance in Asia? Are they bringing any tourist dollars in or is that helping at all? Um, elephants are also very important for the economies of local people because if you're looking
1: at a lot of places where they're found, there's thriving ecotourism mm-hmm. opportunities for people who are able to, local people who are able to serve in the tourism industry, either, you know, in hotels or as guides, you know, leading, uh, visitors to see elephants, you know, in the wild. It's such a wonderful experience seeing elephants in the wild. You know, most people, Thing, are, are when you when you when they think of Asian elephants, particularly in the West, think of elephants in captivity, and are not aware that there is a significant wild population that you know is wonderful to go and see, and are also in a lot of trouble that needs um, our support. Right. But also, it, it, yeah, it's really important to to have that understanding that while. You know, you might go and experience the company of a captive elephant by, you know, bathing it or being around it. Um, it's also really, it's a wonderful thing to actually go and see them in the wild as well. So if you're out there in an Asian elephant range country, please do make an effort to go see some wild elephants because it just is, it's, it's just a phenomenal experience seeing them do what they do in their natural environment, uh, bathing or playing with each other or just you name it. It's just, it's a fantastic thing to see them doing, you know, engaging in their natural behaviors in, you know, places where they're found. And it's important to forget that. It, it, and it's important not to forget the wild elephants that also share that space along with the captive populations that you may see more often right. when you go to Asia.
0: Well, and especially too, if you're seeing them in the wild, you know, a lot of your Money is usually helping support those local communities and which is then enhancing the likelihood of more protection and things like that. Cause ecotourism. Absolutely. I think the more that grows and, um, with different species, um, especially with like a mega herbivore, like an elephant, it's really going to help yeah. the overall cause. Yeah.
1: And also bringing in these economic opportunities for local communities, you know, to ecotourism can can serve as an alternative livelihood opportunity for communities that may be impacted by things like human-elephant conflict. So by providing them with such opportunities, you're also increasing tolerance for living with elephants and having elephants around you. Yes. Uh, That shows you that a live elephant is is worth much more than a dead one, for instance. You know, you're bringing in tourists, you're bringing in revenue for yourselves, but also you're helping protect elephants and other wildlife. And I think it's a,
0: that's a win-win solution for, for everyone concerned. Yeah. And so with some of these conservation efforts, um, and there's definitely some good news stories coming out of 2018 and early 19 with certain species, uh, their population increasing according to IUCN. But a majority of the species are either staying stable or decreasing with population. Mm-hmm. And so for me, sometimes when I'm doing these episodes week after week, it can just seem a little bleak. Or I can I feel like sometimes we're having so many setbacks uh, with yeah. conservation. And so since you're in the daily grind and fighting the good fight every day, what helps keep you motivated each day to keep working hard even if there is a setback? Um, you're
1: so right in that, you know, in this field you're often faced with bleak stories yeah. and, and often, you know, see a lot of setbacks. But um we're here doing what we do because we have hope. Mm-hmm. We believe in a positive outcome and a positive future for wildlife. And therefore, every day, if if even if it becomes challenging and becomes difficult, uh, you have to remind yourself that There are good stories out there, good things that have come out of all of the efforts that um, organizations, not just WWF, but everyone out there that is working towards conservation is you know, effort that they're putting into, um, reaching or having positive outcomes that they, they do make a difference. And there are positive, you know, glimmers of hope now and then or things that we see that are, are, are showing us that our efforts are not in vain. And as long as that's there and as long as there's hope alive, we can't give up. I won't give up. I love it. So that's, that's my sort of mission in that, uh, I, you know, you got to fight the good fight. That's right. That's a good mantra. And hang on till mm-hmm. you know, just keep fighting it until you. For me personally, it's like until my last breath. Uh, this is a fight that I was meant to fight. Right. And I will you, keep fighting. You're,
0: it. You've always been meant to be the voice for those Asian elephants, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and now, so with that being said, I mean, you're very uh, obviously you have the dream job for a lot of people, and you're you're able to interact on the ground and and then uh, with other organizations and tons of people that are dedicated just like yourselves. But how can the average person, the average Joe, Mm -hmm. like myself, what can we do to help conserve the Asian elephant or for that matter, other endangered Asian species that uh, we've focused on in this podcast before?
1: I think a big thing that everyone can do, which I, you know, one of the biggest issues that I mentioned earlier is, um, lack of awareness about Asian elephants. Most people, when you talk about elephants, are mostly aware of, you know, African elephants and their plight and the poaching crisis, et cetera. But most people are not aware, um, of, uh, you know, wild Asian elephant populations that are in a lot of trouble. Yeah, way more trouble. How wonderful they are. Exactly, and how wonderful they are and what wonderful role they serve in the places where they're found and just what incredible animals they are. So the biggest thing that anyone can do is to share the knowledge that they have gained perhaps through this you know podcast or, or other reading they may have done, um, and to share it with their friends and family and peers um, and to spread that spread that uh, wonderful awareness and the wealth of, you know, information with everyone else that, you know, you know, um, support Asian elephant conservation efforts. Uh, make sure you're not buying things like, you know, ivory, for instance, when you're traveling out and about, make sure you're engaging in responsible uh, tourism activities. Uh, go see wild elephants whenever, if ever you're in Asia, please go visit these wonderful national parks and see some elephants and just connect with them. And that in itself will make such a difference and and will enrich your life in
0: in so many wonderful ways. Wonderful. And so how can our audience learn more about Asian elephants and also, of course, the incredible, incredible efforts being uh, put forth by your team and others at the World Wildlife Fund to help save these Asian elephants?
1: To learn more about Asian elephants and what we do, you can visit www.worldwildlife.org and explore our pages on on Asian elephants as well as all the other species that we have listed there um, so you can learn about um, more about what we do.
0: Awesome. And you guys have a beautiful Facebook page as well.
1: Absolutely. You can check us out on Facebook, um, Instagram, yeah, those, uh, Twitter. Yeah,
0: Instagram is the new the social new media
1: platforms. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we're we're on all of them. So if you want to learn more about what we do, please do check them out. Um and uh
0: we hope you will visit. Awesome. And so for any of our listeners out there that are like myself or even younger and wanting to know how do I get more involved in a career in animal conservation mm-hmm. what can what could I do to perhaps someday be seating in your in your chair um or yeah. or out in the field? Um, yeah do you have any advice for those students or people because it's no ne- you're never too old yeah. to start right?
1: No, you are never too old to start. I mean, I'm a case in point there, I think um and uh, it's it's really for me the the key message there is tap into your passion. If that's what you're really passionate about, sometimes, you know, it may take you longer than you thought it would or ever intended it to. Uh, But if that is what you really want to do, if you want to work on wildlife conservation, work for animals in some capacity, um, I would say just don't give up on that passion just you know it, it there may be a lot of obstacles along the way trials and tribulations but as long as you hold on to that vision that passion and that uh serious um uh urge or need to do something and to engage in those issues um it goes a long way, holding on to that passion and never giving up on, you know, just keeping your eye on the prize mm-hmm. and ensuring that you're working towards it by getting the education you need to get the job, getting the skills that you need uh to work in conservation. And it's not just one thing or the other. Even if you're a wildlife biologist, it's always great to get more experience on other things like public speaking or ma- or project management or uh fundraising Biases, or communications. Sure, really. And so you, it's really important to be sort of have well-rounded skills uh, to be able also to be able to make yourself more marketable in this, this field. Um, and so I would say it's just it's a constant learning experience. It's a learning experience for me every single day. And I continue to learn and grow from everything I'm learning and doing in my job um, and everything I'm learning from my wonderful colleagues who are experts in you know, in, in the jobs that they do. Um, and it's I think it's just it's just a combination of all of that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really about if you don't have the drive or the passion, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for you. Right. If you do, if you feel that that's really what you want, that's what you want to do, um, you can achieve it. Wonderful. It's possible.
0: Yeah. And then my last question is, are you guys hiring? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um so we occasionally do have uh you know opportunities available listed on our website so please keep checking, keep checking uh, yeah, our uh, me, you no. know <laughs> listing of uh of Opportunities, yes, <laughs> career opportunities on you know our worldwildlife.org website,
0: um, and who knows, you might see something that you might be perfect fit for. Awesome, and I might just invite myself to uh, your next trip trip to India to see if I can see some wild <laughs> elephants and, and support their conservation. <laughs> sure, well, great. Well, Milanga, thank you so much for your time, your passion, your enthusiasm today. I know. I've learned a lot about Asian elephants and I, I loved them before this podcast, but I love them 10 times more now. Um, after hearing all your stories and just putting some great visuals in there and hearing about all the amazing work that your team at World Wildlife Fund is doing to help, to help support Asian elephants in the wild. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Angie. I'm so happy to hear that. And I only hope that, you know, this conversation helps uh, grow the love of elephants among, you know, all your listeners. And thank you so much again for having me. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the loves of my life. Awesome. Thank we'll,
0: you. We'll have you back to maybe do some tiger or different species sometime.
1: Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you.